Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Earl Khan. And I'm Richard Roper. Ken Burns is on the podcast today. Amazing. The great American historian, documentary maker. He has covered so many subjects, Row, in such great depth and detail. And whether it's something you don't know a lot about or something you think you're an expert in, when you watch a Ken Burns documentary series, you learn so much. He's like, to me, the greatest professor I've ever had. Without question. Whether he's talking about jazz or baseball Mm -hmm. or some president or a national park, you learn something you never thought you would want to know, let alone enjoy knowing. But the amazing thing is, Ro, it never feels like a history lesson. It never feels like you're eating your vegetables. It's incredibly entertaining, even as you're learning. When you're watching a Ken Burns documentary, you got to stop yourself from calling or texting friends and saying, hey, did you know? Right. Because you're learning so much in such a cool way. And you got to remember that Ken Burns' most famous early documentary was Civil War. Yeah. That's over 30 years ago that he produced that. And there was no real film of the Civil War. He had to make a documentary Mm. without moving pictures, just by moving the camera around still pictures and then putting on these crazy-ass experts that we all fell in love with, like that Shelby Foote guy. Exactly, making superstars out of historians and authors and experts who should be superstars and should be revered as much as sports heroes. And I've talked to a lot of filmmakers who have worked in different genres who are actually so impressed by his directorial acumen and style and amazed that he can do so much with, in some cases, so little in terms of visuals. We'll hear from him, but first the Academy reacts to us. Well, not really, but we'll at least take credit for it. (laughs) The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing to drive your overall business success. Because they believe today's online world is your opportunity, visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. So on the previous podcast, we talked about the Oscars not allowing Zoom presentations. Steven Soderbergh, the great Steven Soderbergh, he deserves all the accolades anybody could possibly give him. But he seems like a bit of a taskmaster as a producer of this year's Oscars. And he says, no Zoom, it's going to make it look cheap. But now a bunch of the nominees are mad. Yeah, big blowback here, Ro. Oscar telecast producer Steven Soderbergh, as well as Jesse Collins and Stacey Shear, sent out this letter to all the nominees saying congratulations, and he gave talking points about speeches, let's make it interesting, but also said, we need you there. We need you outside LA's Union Station where they're going to have this elaborate set and do the presentations. And if you want to be a part of the telecast that night, you have to be there in person. He said, no Zoom acceptance speeches, no Zoom presentations. We've seen a lot of the uh, video chat element in uh, the Golden Globes and the Emmys and the Grammys, and sometimes it's gone beautifully and sometimes it's gone comedically wrong, and they wanted to avoid all that, Ro. But here's the problem. We have such an international cast of nominees this year that a number of the acting nominees and, in some cases, directorial nominees are not in the United States of America currently, nor will they be allowed to travel to the U.S. in time for the ceremony. So we have Emerald Fennell, who people might, uh, if you watch The Crown, she played Camilla Parker Bowles on there and did a wonderful job. But she's also the director of Promising Young Woman. She is nominated for her directing of Promising Young Woman. 
She's in the UK, as is Sasha Baron Cohen, mm-hmm. uh, as is Vanessa Kirby, who's nominated for her performance, who also, by the way, is in The Crown. But <laughs> Vanessa Kirby, who's a terrific actress in role, she's amazing in Pieces of a Woman. Uh, none of them would be able to travel to the United States. The UK has a ban on all international travel until May 17th. They can't get there. Uh, Emerald Fennell said, I- I'd love to swim across the Atlantic if I could. She's heartbroken that she would not be able to be a part of the ceremony because the only way you would be able to see these nominees would be via video chat. I think they're going to have to make an adjustment in the playbook here. Just if, even though you know Soderbergh had a great idea and the other producers and said let's let's try to make this a more interesting telecast, you can't exclude nominees because they're unable to travel due to a pandemic. That's not fair at all. Absolutely not. And as great as Steven Soderbergh is, and I know he's trying to do quality control here, it's 2021, one year after the worst year of our lives. We're going to have to make some accommodations. Yeah, and he, I, I get that the producers were trying to make the telecast interesting. The ratings have been way down for these other telecasts because it's very difficult to make it entertaining when people are on separate coasts and in separate rooms. Here's another factor to consider, though, Ro. But Even, I'm going to stop okay. you right there. You know yes, what's sir. more important? It's the Academy Awards. What's more important is winning the award. Of course. Because at, at some point, whether people saw the telecast or not is irrelevant. The Academy Award is a piece of history. Well, that's absolutely true, and it's something that will be the first line of every tribute and obituary, even nominated. That's why I always say, even though we joke about it, it really is an honor just to be nominated. If you're (laughs) one of five nominees out of maybe 600 productions, whatever the category may be, that's an incredible honor. And it's something, you know, when they talk about someone being a four-time nominee but has never won, we should celebrate that they've been nominated that many times. Here's another factor, Ro. Even Mm -hmm. if you're in America as an actor or a director, or a nominee in the other categories. If you attend the Academy Awards, what about returning to work? You're probably going to have to quarantine for 14 days before you're allowed back on a set, if you're working on a set right Right. now. So I think you're going to see maybe half of the nominees saying, I can't do this because A, I can't get there because I'm overseas, or B, if I go there, I'm going to stop production and put people on hiatus. 250 jobs are going to be put on hold because my narcissistic ass went to the Academy <laughs> Awards in person and so I could get my little gold man. So, I, you know, let's, let's admit it. When we talked about this, it seemed like, okay, they're trying to make it a better telecast, but... We didn't send that letter out. The producers did, and they're three extremely intelligent, sensitive, caring people who I think do we know that came. Th- I yes, don't know that we I actually do. know that. I, okay, I, and, right. and had the best of intentions and didn't think this through. Now my prediction is we still have almost a month until the Academy Awards. They're going to change this. They're going to say, "Listen, we, yeah. we we encourage people to attend if they can." We completely recognize and respect the fact that some of our groundbreaking nominees can't be there and we are certainly not going to penalize them because they can't be there because of a pandemic how about this you're the fucking academy awards you should actually have satellite links to the nominees yeah you can afford to do it i know it's expensive i know it's a pain but you should be doing it so it doesn't look like Zoom. It actually looks like a television show. You know, that's a great point. You've talked about this, and I couldn't agree more. And the same applies to the Grammys, the Emmys, and the Golden Globes. Even though these industries have taken a hit, we're talking about 
multi-billion dollar endeavors, and they're still doing very, very well. And if the Academy Awards viewership is down 30% this year, for example, it'll still be one of the top-rated broadcasts of the year. It's still a big hit show. It still makes money. Movies are still making money. So you're right. Spend, let's say it costs a million dollars to to do what you're talking about, Ro, to have professional setups in maybe 12 different locations with camera angles and lighting and everything done safely and making it look cool. Do it. That's a great idea. You're welcome. And Stephen, call me. You've got a you've got an idea for a, a searing and biting handheld camera drama featuring <laughs> characters at a crossroads in their lives. You think he'd be perfect to direct that? Yes, I do. Okay, All now right. the Oscar ballot. Speaking of the Oscars, is now 23 categories, not 24. And I'd like to take some credit for this. Yeah, we've talked about this uh, in previous podcasts, and I always have been saying 24 categories, 24 categories uh, for I don't know how many years now. They didn't always have 24 major categories in the Academy Awards. For example, the Best Animated Film was not something that was a category a generation ago. That was added because there were so many great animated films. But for very many years, Road, we've had that nice, neat, and clean 24 categories Academy Awards ballot. Everything from Best Picture and Best Director to Live Action Short, Makeup and Hair Design. One of the things you and I have talked about, we, we did a deep dive on this in one podcast. We talked about sound mixing and sound editing and the difference between the two and how very, very often the same films are nominated in both categories. And the Academy has now decided that sound mixing and sound editing should be combined into best sound. Now, you'd think the nominees in those categories or potential nominees would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's giving a short trip. They're actually kind of behind this and in favor of this because hmm. sound mixers and sound editors, those are different professions. They work hand in hand. They work together. Hmm. A lot of previous winners who have won for sound mixing have felt bad because they're like, yeah, but my friends who were in the sound editing category didn't win and they worked with me every step of the way. It's, it's a collaborative process. Well, I guess the best way we could describe it is if a band won a Grammy, but they said, okay, the guitarist and the bassist are going to win, but the drummer yeah. and the, the trombone player aren't going to get a piece of the pie. So 23 categories now in your Oscar ballot. And they always had to explain the difference in every telecast. We had to go laboriously through the details of sound editing yeah, and sound yeah. mixing, and, and most people don't give a shit. <laughs> so it's so like, true. just let's... They you know, don't have to explain. Wait, wait, nobody wants any of those anyway. I yeah. mean, when you get those people yeah. up, the only people that no one has ever heard of who yeah. win Oscars and we sit through the award and, you know, God bless them. I get, you know, we're in the sound yeah. industry, so yeah. I appreciate what they do. However... The people who really need to be stopped immediately are the documentarians. Even though we've got the great Ken Burns coming up, yeah. there's always some short subject documentary that wins. And it's an activist yeah. who gets up there and wants to speak for 20 minutes on the need for a well in Umbaza. Exactly. It's always somebody that says, listen, people, <laughs> if I hear one more person confuse a monkey with a gorilla with an orangutan... <laughs> There's going to be hell to pay, and it's the subject of my next documentary, and then playoff music. And and you're right, with sound editing and uh, uh, sound mixing, they'd always bring somebody like Dana Carvey out to do like sound effects or something, explain the difference, and somebody playing a cowbell, that was mixing, this is editing. So the only thing that, the most important part of this, though, that I find uh, most personally uh, tragic is that I'll never be able to break my record of getting 23 right out of 24 categories on the ballot because now you can only get 23 right. Mm. That's it. 
23 out of 23 is a perfect ballot. Dear listener, have you noticed he brings that up every time? I like to bring that up. Let us now discuss the contest that we're going to be doing. Beat the Experts is the contest. So we're going to fill out our ballots. We have filled out our ballots in all 23 categories. And we're inviting everybody to do the same. Now, whoever has the most correct balance, and if there's a tie, then we'll do a drawing. You know, if 16 people, 23, right? But one lucky winner is going to get this amazing movie prize package. We got coffee table books. We got swag from movies. We got DVDs. We got stuff that you can't get commercially. A whole bunch of stuff. We've talked to our friends at various studios. Netflix has helped out. Apple TV Plus has helped out. Other studios are helping out. Putting together this really cool package. In fact, we'll have details about the prize package coming up. But it's very simple. Here's what people have to do. If you want to enter the contest and tell your friends, go to AmericanEagle.com slash ballot. American Eagle, all one word, AmericanEagle.com slash ballot. You'll see the ballot there, and then you can just click on each one of the 23 categories. You give us your information. We don't need your phone number. We don't need to know your habits, just your email, so we can contact you and say, sorry, you came in 110th, or you won. So that's the contest. Beat the experts. It's up and running now. Uh, we've got about two weeks. All the details about the contest are right there on the website, but all you got to do is go to AmericanEagle.com slash ballot, AmericanEagle.com slash ballot. Oh, couldn't be better than that. Ken Burns joins us. But first, Floyd's. Your haircut, your way. Floyd's 99 Barbershop has expert barbers and stylists who take pride in crafting the perfect cut every time. Walk in, book online, or give your shop a call. Learn about their safety practices at floydsbarbershop.com. Safety never looks so good. In just a moment, we'll play an interview I did with Ken Burns about his new documentary series for PBS on Hemingway. It's a three-part series, but each part is about two hours long, so essentially six hours on who is arguably the most accomplished and most famous American author who ever lived. When you look at the life and times of Ernest Hemingway, what he did as a writer, but also how he became this larger-than-life persona, it's an incredible story. Each one of these two-hour episodes could be a complete film. They are complete films. Incredible stuff, bro. Ernest Hemingway, born, I believe, in 1899, and the story picks up right from the very beginning and takes us through just the first episode, Row, the first 30 years of his life, what this man accomplished and went through from serving with the Red Cross in World War I when he was 18 years old, sustaining nearly life-threatening injuries, coming home. He worked for the Kansas City Star as a reporter. I love the fact that so many great novelists started as newspaper writers, whether it was in the 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th century, the 21st century. It's so cool. And takes us through you know, his various romances and the public persona that started to be created and, and the creation of works such as A Farewell to Arms. So Ken Burns, why is Ernest Hemingway the most enduring, fascinating figure of the 20th century? Well, first of all, and it's good to hear your voice. First of all, he's just a great, stunningly great writer and arguably the greatest American writer of the 20th century. And I'm happy to, to go either way. He is. He is. It doesn't really matter. He's, his prose is enduring. He understood nature. You know, he grew up in Oak Park, uh, spent summers on a lake in Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, his father, who was a doctor, uh, took him on house calls, and he observed some pretty tough stuff growing up, and then also gave his son an appreciation of nature. And so he's a keen observer of nature. His mother gave him uh, an appreciation of art, particularly music. And so he carried that rhythmic cadence 
uh, into his desire to become first a journalist. He got a cub reporter job with the Kansas City Star, whose style sheet insisted on fair writing. And then he goes off to World War One as an ambulance driver and is nearly blown up. So he's writing about nature. He's writing about how human beings interact, particularly men and women. He's writing about universal things like war and making love and how to order a good meal or appreciate a good meal or a bottle of wine. And he is capturing an essence of it with a kind of darkness and curiosity. So there in and of itself, the writing is great. But then he helps construct this huge mythology, which the world is happy to go along and help him construct of this, you know, veteran of a war, even though he's an ambulance driver, wounded veteran, very true. Mm -hmm. uh, this, you know, outdoorsman, this big game hunter, this deep sea fisherman, this brawler, this drinker, this man about town, this lover of women, all of which is true. But he began to build this edifice that began to constrict him, didn't it, it sort of limited him. So it's this wonderful Shakespearean tragedy and hovering over it his mental illness that ran in the family. His father committed suicide, was very depressed. Whatever PTSD he got from the war, the nine, we think at least nine serious concussions that uh, could have produced any one of them, uh, CTE that would have itself provoked depression or mental illness or dementia or some such things, alcoholism, all of it. And yet, Yet his output of short stories, his output of novels, particularly the four great ones, The Sun Also Rises, A Farewell to Arms, probably his best, mm -hmm. uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls and The Old Man and the Sea, some forgettable stuff. A lot of interesting nonfiction, uh, like Movable Feasts and uh, Death in the Afternoon about bullfighting in Green Hills of Africa about safaris. I mean, but he's just a monumental figure. And then he has this macho toxic masculine image, which it turns out betrays a great deal of insecurity and vulnerability and sensitivity and a curiosity about blurring the lines between men and women, what we would call gender fluidity today. So for us as filmmakers, you're always the big, huge, hard shell that you can't get through is the myth of Hemingway. And once you get through it, and, and we were, the family gave us access to the papers so we could have the manuscripts and see this incredible work ethic, this discipline, this writer's writer, you know, had 47 different endings that he jettisoned to A Farewell to Arms before he got the one that he liked. And with all of those endings are there with their stuff. And with the genius of com uh, computer graphics, we can strip off some of those uh, emendations and then re-add them. So it's almost as if we're looking over his shoulder as he's changing um, a more complicated word is something simpler and and direct. And he's coming out in an era when Joyce, who's difficult, and Faulkner, who's difficult, are writing these gigantically impossible <laughs> sentences for people to read and off-putting a lot of regular folks and thrilling, of course, the Academy, and rightly so. But hey, he's daring, as one commentator says in the film, to impersonate simplicity, but it's not. It's like an iceberg. You're seeing maybe, as he says, one-eighth sticking up out of the sea, but there's seven eights lurking below and the curiosity about death. Anyway, it's, it's just a phenomenal story. We were able also to get access to letters where they're not so polished. So you see him anxious, you see him worried, you see him angry, you see him just tossing off a comment, critical of a colleague that he didn't need to be critical of because of whatever insecurity. So what happens is you begin to form a 
a portrait of him. And it's not a simple, as you and I've talked before, it's not a simple binary thing. There's not an on-off switch that our, you know, that our culture pretends right now is there. He's just complicated. And yeah. at the end, you, you have, because the tragedy of the end is so monumental. It's like a gigantic tsunami breaking over the top of his head. You actually begin to feel compassion when you realize how much of his output endures to this day. Sentences that, you know, I could read to you that would break your heart. You know, I mean, it's just really, really great stuff. He's got a couple of short stories. One is called Up in Michigan, which is written in the 1920s when he's a baby. You know, he's just just out of his teens, and it's about date rape, and it's from the point of view of a woman when we think of him as a misogynist, you know? Yeah. Got another one, Hills Like Right Elephants, where the subject is abortion. The word is never mentioned, and it's a man having a conversation with his girlfriend about her getting an abortion, but they don't say it, and he he's saying it's whatever you decide, but of course, as all women know and all male ha- males have to admit, there's that masculine prerogative, one of the consultants says masculine assertion, which is basically saying, yes, yes, but, you know, and trying to to (laughs) do it. And she just finally looks up and says, will you please, 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 please stop talking. It's one of the great, I mean, it's like, wait, this is Ernest Hemingway. He's he's actually able to, as the writer Edna O'Brien in our film, the Irish writer Edna O'Brien says, you know, get under the skin of the opposite sex and have possess a kind of androgyny that allows him to imagine perhaps even some of his own boorish behavior. So it's just, it's my, you know, it's it's my most, uh, our most, Lynn Novick is the co-director, excuse me, um, that I do many times. Um, the It's our most adult film. You know, it's, and I don't mean that in a sexual or salacious way, though there is interesting stuff. He gets his wives to cut their hair short like boys. He grows hairs long. You know, you be this. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting and perhaps salacious to some, but it's adult in the complexity and the fact that as you grow older, you know you have to accept complexity and undertow and complications. And as Winton said to me in jazz, sometimes the thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. <laughs> That's, that is true. His relationship with women is fascinating. It's well told. I mean, obviously you see it reflected in his work. But when you go to places, historic places like his house in Key West, part of the tour of his home in Key West is really about the relationship of his wife at that point, who was spending a lot of his money building this really opulent for its time. First, I think it's the first swimming pool. Uh, it's in the Keys. It's like it, it was it's it's a fantastic thing to see if people can actually see it. What is it about his relationship with women? Does that go back to his mother? What is it all about? Because yeah, I, they're always very it- complicated. You, it's very complicated, and you'll have to watch the film to decide. I mean, you could see that his mother, whom he got uh, despised and thought that she had driven his father to suicide, even though he thought his father was then weak in retrospect, but always worried about whether he'd fall into the same trap, and we know how that turned out. The mother is the over-dramatizing or self-dramatizing one, and that's him. So he's got it there. He was um, abandoned, got a just the worst Dear John letter from a nurse he thought he was going to marry who was nursing him in the hospital in in Italy after his wounds, many, many months, very serious wounds, 
20, 25 pieces of shrapnel in his leg. He nearly died. And uh, we found some footage. No one's ever seen it before of him convalescing. Just uh, just sheer luck. You know, we went, wait, I think that's Hemingway. You know, and it was. And uh, the the our, uh, one of our, our staff just came and just said, look at this. And it, we, we were so excited. Yeah. Anyway, um, it, but, it, it, you know, so maybe it's that. Um, or, you know, and then he has four wives, all of whom he loves falling in love. But I don't know if he knows how to sustain it. And being a writer looking for material, he finds way to sabotage. We all know that in the small scale lives that we live. But he sabotages it in a big way. His second wife, Pauline, whom you're referring to, actually had some wealth of her own. And her uncle, Gus, sort of um, uh, helps underwrite a lot of their things, including their first safari to Africa. So it's less her spending his money than he grows tired and sort of feels like he's not he wants his wives to be wholly owned subsidiaries of him and not the other way around and he does she doesn't want that she wants to serve him in the best possible way she's you know lured him and he's was happy to be lured from his first wife hadley who's just um a saint and then you know he leaves pauline for martha gellhorn and you know at first it's wonderful sparks fly they go off to the spanish civil war but She's, a, she's not going to give up her career as a writer. She's a really great war correspondent. And um, so he gets insecure about that. So he has to kind of blow that up, finds a fourth wife, Mary, who spends the most time with him, who suffers perhaps the most, the ups and downs, as the demons begin to overtake him. And there are moments of clarity when he can sit down and write Old Man in the Sea and write this beautiful uh, response to the Nobel Committee that awards him the prize for fiction literature uh in the 50s but you know you're seeing it's sort of like a guy riding on bareback in the middle of a thunderstorm and they're like 12 horsemen behind him the the horsemen of the family history and of the of the mental illness of his father's suicide of the concussions of the alcohol of the self-medicating to make sure he's a functioning alcoholic and i mean it's just it's such a caution. People come to me and say, well, what do you want out to, to, for audiences to take away from this? I said, don't drink too much. <laughs> and, and, and if you're having, there's no shame now. The stigma, we might have been able to save Ernest Hemingway had the stigma of mental health been not so oppressive in the late 50s and early 60s, where, you know, even when he was so seriously ill, they sent him to the Mayo Clinic, they said for blood pressure when he needed to be at a psychiatric clinic. So the... You know, there's there's no shame in saying, you know, uh, that that I need help or that I'm feeling uh, having suicidal thoughts because there's lots of uh, numbers to call, the 24-hour numbers. So that's it. The rest of it is this big, wild mess of an extraordinarily beautiful and gifted writer with as complicated a life as we've ever tried to come to terms with. I will leave you with this very simple question, Ken Burns. What does Hemingway say about the 20th century, and what does the 20th century say about Ernest Hemingway? Well, he is one of the perfect exemplars of the new 20th century. Um, Gertrude Stein, who sort of held the famous salon and helped him when he was just a boy there, uh, when she didn't need to help him, but saw something in him beyond just his handsomeness, you know, said that Paris was where the 20th century was. And so you have to sort of say something happened to the Victorian world in World War One, and and I believe 
the pandemic that followed that isn't talked about much, that left deep and abiding scars, which he wrote about well, as did many people. But at a time when Stravinsky is changing the rules and Eric Satie is changing the rules of music and Joyce and Faulkner are complicating literature, he's doing the same thing, but in a new way. And um, you can you can hear it in the early Bach that he loved as a kid, that his mother insisted that he understood a kind of rhythm and um, and of, of repetition and counterpoint and counterpoint and repetition. And you can see it in, in the music he created, which is utterly a kind of 20th century thing. The first novel, The Sun Also Rises, doesn't even mention the war, but it's clearly about the people who are still laboring under its shadow. And then, of course, um, A Farewell to Arms is a love story specifically about the war and escaping it with unbelievably tragic consequences. So, you know, it's just, um, it's word after word. I was going to say page after page, but you realize with Hemingway, the economy of it, the Mm -hmm. precision of it is so great that uh, he represents it. So if a modernist thing in jazz is the bebop of, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie's this virtuosity that no one can keep up with, this it's extraordinary outpouring of stuff. And then Miles Davis comes along, still in the same tradition, but can't play at that speed or that virtuosity, but he understands the essence of it. And so he, he just played what he called were the pretty notes. Ernest Hemingway wrote what were the pretty notes. And the music that he played endures to this day. That is such great stuff. Ro, I know you've done a lot of interviews with Ken Burns over the years. That might be my all-time favorite. You guys are so great together. And, you know, Ken Burns... he's so great. Listen, I didn't do anything. I asked three questions in that entire 15 minutes. He is just the most articulate, amazing, great mind of the 21st century. So true, but you know where to put the ball on the tee so he can then just whack it right down the fairway. Uh, And he's a poet himself, his way with words and his descriptions of of Hemingway. I also want to give some credit too, Ro, to there's there's there is actually acting in the Ken Burns documentaries. And no, they don't do recreations like you see in the true crime series. But Peter Coyote, who is his longtime narrator, who has done a half dozen or more of the Ken Burns docu-series. We hear his familiar and soothing voice Mm -hmm. throughout this series. And Jeff Daniels, the great Jeff Daniels, is the voice of Hemingway, where he's reading a letter from Ernest Hemingway or describing things, and a lot of other familiar voices as well. And they add something. Jeff Daniels is an actor who knows how to hit all the high notes, but as Hemingway, he speaks in such a voice that you feel like you're at a cafe across the table from Ernest Hemingway, and he's just telling you something in conversation. Brilliant work. And what Ken Burns describes about Hemingway in this interview is so important, about what a complicated man Hemingway was as a result of his past, his present, his fear of the future, and the genetic imperative that created him. One of the things that happens with legendary authors through the decades, Roe, is that they become this shorthand. Emily Dickinson was shy, and nobody knew who she was, and then she died, and then we got to know her poems. Mark Twain had this folksy way and was so entertaining. Hemingway was all bullfights and macho bravado and you know manly man stuff, and there's so much more to his story, and yeah. that's one of the great valuable things about this series. I think he was a terrific father, sometimes. I think that he was a loving husband, sometimes. 
I think he was, like so many people, except this enormous talent. Hemingway is very complicated. I hate the myth of Hemingway. It obscures the man. And the man is much more interesting than the myth. Hemingway, a film by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, premieres on PBS April 5th. So who should we follow on social media this week? This is a kind of a fun one, Ro. We've talked a lot of times about who to follow, and it's people who are pretty famous. This one, it's at Pour Me Coffee, all one word, so to speak, at Pour Me Coffee. Witty observations and insights, and we don't know who at Pour Me Coffee is. It might be Ken Burns. I don't think it is, <laughs> but it's somebody. My guess is that, is that it's an accomplished writer of some sort who just wants to have these observations out there speak for themselves. So at Pour Me Coffee, follow at Pour Me Coffee. Trust me. All right. We will. For once. Finally. <laughs> The Ron Roper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Special thanks to our executive producers, Renee Nelson and Tim Alanius, and our music and production director, Brian Altimer. And as always, we thank you so much for subscribing, for downloading, for listening, for sharing with your friends. Don't forget the big Beat the Experts contest, AmericanEagle.com slash ballot. Go to AmericanEagle.com slash ballot. Ro, this was probably my favorite podcast so far. The interview with Ken Burns was amazing. We have another incredible podcast this week in just two days. Yeah. We talked to one of my bucket list interviews, somebody I'd never had a chance to talk to before, always wanted to talk to the one and only, the amazing James Kahn. See you then.